The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. I pointed out that um, in chapters 4 to 27, um, this whole middle section of the book of Job can be broken down into these three cycles of conversation between Job and his friends. And the first two cycles, as you see in that little table there, is uh, um, pretty much identical to each other in terms of the pattern of which person speaks. And now we've reached this third cycle, the last one, and it's unique because in this one, Zophar will not take a turn. Instead, Job will go on this extended speech that will span from chapter 28 to chapter 31. And we're going to look at that extended speech in my next message a couple weeks from now. Um, this principle of retribution that John referenced, that we've been talking about throughout this series, this righteous will be blessed while the wicked will be punished, is at the heart of this debate between Job and his friends. And up to now, really, neither Job nor his friends have ever questioned this principle. But in the second cycle that we looked at last time, uh, Job argues that, man, there are some major problems with this principle. Not only because he knows he has done nothing to deserve the suffering that he is experiencing, but also now because he looks at the world and actually sees a world filled with wicked people who are living utterly carefree lives. And as I said in my last message, the principle of retribution uh, falls into this category we could call general truths that are not to be taken as airtight guarantees of a particular outcome. And the example I gave you was Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs anger stirs up anger. Uh, I'll give you a few more examples. Proverbs 19, verse 5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever pours out lies will not go free. One more, Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And as I said, a gentle response will usually diffuse an argument, won't it? But it doesn't always. Our lies will often catch up to us, but not every time. Sometimes we get away with it. Good parenting will often result in kids who grow up to be model adults. But even the best parents can experience the pain of children who reject their upbringing and choose a totally different path in life, an entirely different set of values. And the same could be said about this principle of retribution. But now, as things are winding down, it seems as if Job is wondering if this principle is even generally true. Is it in any way true? And as we continue into this third cycle, in his suffering and his doubts, Job's friends only add to his pain. Repent so that your fortunes can be restored to you. But Job makes it clear that that has never been his motivation for seeking God. 
It is not to return to the good life that he once knew. All that he wants from God is vindication for his innocence in the face of these incessant accusations of his friends that he has done wrong. Never once does Job bring up the issue of rewards. Chapter 23, verse 3 to 10, we find these words of Job. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go up to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There, the upright can establish their innocence before him. And there, I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. These are the glorious moments that Job is capable of in the midst of his suffering. Capable of such beautiful and moving words. This is truthfully the Job that we want, isn't it? The Job that inspires us and gives us hope in our own suffering. But the reality is that there are these demonstrations of growth and clarity in Job, but they are mixed with statements that also show how hard this is for Job. And how increasingly Job is beginning to doubt God's goodness and justice. It's this very confusing mixed picture that we see. And so we get to chapter 23, verse 13 to 16. And these, these are the words that came out of the same mouth. But he stands alone and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decrees against me and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart. The Almighty has terrified me. This is not a healthy fear that we are commanded to have of God in the Bible. This is sheer terror. God view of Job, uh, Job's view of God, in other words, is deteriorating deeply in the face of his unrelenting suffering. Chapter 24, verse 1 and verse 9 to 12 says this, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves, but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. The longer that Job suffers, the more he stands in judgment against God convinced that he is right and God is wrong. And this is never more true than it when it comes to this issue of justice. Job has lost confidence that God knows how to rule his world with justice. And you can almost imagine this logic in Job's mind. What's so hard about this? Why is it so hard for you, God? Punish and get rid of the bad people. 
and show mercy and kindness to the good people. Simple justice. But as John Walton points out in his commentary, this issue of showing mercy and justice is far more complicated than we could ever realize. He writes, oppression of every sort runs rampant while innocent people suffer. What is God doing? Nothing we fear. What kind of God is this? If God truly weeps over the condition of the world, how can he adopt such a hands-off posture? Even when we are able to give God the benefit of the doubt, therefore not suggesting that he is flawed or that we are superior, we still have questions. A fallen world is intrinsically defined by wickedness. If there were no wickedness, the world would not be fallen. No matter how much wickedness God might eliminate, we could always find more wicked people to complain about. Defining the wicked as anyone we see as more wicked than ourselves. If all wickedness were eliminated, the world would no longer be fallen and none of us would exist. What Walton is getting at is, where do you draw this line of justice? Between good people and bad people. Between judgment and mercy. Who gets the mercy and who gets the judgment? Wherever you draw that line, if you are God, chances are that you would put yourself and all the people you care about in that mercy line with the good people. And all the ones who have ever hurt you or crossed you would be the bad people in the judgment side of the line. In the novel, The Shack, the main character, Mackenzie Phillips, I've made reference to this illustration before, uh, is raised in an incredibly abusive household by an alcoholic father. And somehow Mackenzie is able to overcome the brokenness of that childhood and ends up with a wonderful family of his own with a wife and three children. But during a camping trip, his young daughter, Missy, goes missing. And she is actually abducted and killed. And after her death, Mackenzie's life spins out of control. And he eventually abandons his faith in God. And then one day he receives a letter telling him to meet at this cabin. And there he actually encounters God who helps him to deal with the brokenness of his life. And as a part of this journey that he's on of healing, he's required to go to this cave. And he doesn't know what this appointment is about, but when he gets to the cave, he meets this woman named Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. And some years back, I talked about this scene and shared it with you in my words, but today I actually want to show you that clip from a movie that was made from this novel. And I want to say, um, you know, it does, I mean, the image is pretty blurry and dark, but there are some allusions to domestic violence and child abuse and things like that. So just a trigger warning if you're uncomfortable with that. Feel free to step out if you want or if you have young kids here. But um, let's go ahead and take a look at that brief clip and then we'll go on. Fronted with how complicated it is to judge the world. Where do you draw the line that you will call evil 
and say, these people deserve no mercy, and these people do. Um, which offenses demand justice and should be punished? And which deserve mercy and forgiveness? If all wrongdoing and even in, all, in our world were to be punished, then none of us would survive that judgment, would we? Because all of us would be found guilty. As Lady Wisdom says there, this legacy of brokenness goes all the way back to Adam. Do we, in the confusion of a world that is broken like this, think that we know how to rule it in justice better than God does? Well, at this moment, Job seems to think he does as he accuses God of injustice. When God finally shows up, this is why God will say to Job in chapter 40, verse 8, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Part of the complication of this principle of retribution is that it isn't so easy to label people into these categories, is it, of righteous and wicked? Who are the ones who deserve blessings or who deserve curses? We have to be very careful when we speak about this issue of justice and what would it would mean to rule more justly than God does of this world that he has made. Well, the conversation goes on and Bildad's contribution is really not very helpful at all. This is what he basically says. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of a woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm? He is essentially saying people suck and they're worthless. And so what can we really expect from God anyway? And then chapter 26 actually captures this really beautiful poem that Job says, declaring how God is more than capable of ruling his creation. This is the back and forth that I was telling you about. In chapter 26, verse 8 to 14, it says this, he wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens quake aghast at his rebuke. By his power, he turns up the sea. By his wisdom, he cuts Rahab to pieces. By his breath, the skies became fair. His hands pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? It's interesting that in talking about how God is so capable of ruling his creation, he makes particular mention of him being able to defeat these creatures that in those times were known as chaos monsters. We talked about this this morning in our foundations class. Here they're named as Rahab and the gliding serpent. But in ancient times, these were dangerous creatures that are not only found in the Bible, but other religious texts of that time. And they were basically responsible for causing all of the chaos and destruction in our world. And what Job is saying is, for God, these chaos monsters are like nothing. 
He can destroy them in an instant. And he says, and that victory that he would have over them is like, quote, the outer fringes of his work. In other words, it's like nothing. It's an afterthought for God to defeat these monsters that cause chaos in our world. But then in the very next chapter, Job will say this, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit you are right, speaking to his friends who are accusing him. He says, I will never admit you are right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Job continues to maintain his innocence, which makes his suffering all that much more painful and difficult for him to understand. In essence, he says, this is the endless cry of his heart is, what have I done to deserve this from you, God? On the one hand, it's interesting that Job can affirm this statement, God is good. God is good. That's all of chapter 26. God is good. But at this point in his suffering, that statement, the statement that he can no longer affirm, is God is good to me. And these two statements are almost identical, but there are worlds apart from each other as well. You see, Job believes in a general theological sense that God has never stopped being good. He still cares over his creation. And the truth is the whole world enjoys the benefit of that loving care. Every time it rains, every time the sun comes up to bring in a new day, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. Job sees signs of that faithfulness everywhere in God's creation. He can't deny that. But he also feels that he's been excluded from this care. For reasons that he cannot understand, the God who is just has denied him justice. And the God who is good to the rest of creation seems to have singled him out to make his life bitter. And it's as if Job is saying, I don't know what's going on here. It's as if God is holding some kind of an awesome party to show everyone how much he loves them. But for whatever reason, I didn't get an invitation to that party. And so all he can do is stand on the outside, looking through the window and seeing everyone else having a good time while God has abandoned him. And here's the truth is in my years of pastoral counseling, I can say that this is where many Christians find themselves. They can, in a very general sense, agree to this truth that God is good. But they cannot say the last statement, God is good to me. I don't know, I don't get it, but for whatever reason, I don't get to share in that goodness of God. And I think this is why we need to be so careful when we use our limited experience of life 
to make judgments about who God is and how he feels toward us. This is why the word of God is so important to us over and against how we experience life in all of its circumstances. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The more you explore this issue of suffering, the more complicated it gets, and there are no simple answers to it. But what the Bible categorically rejects is to draw the conclusion from our suffering that God does not love me or care about me. Let's pray. As we close out our worship, um, just invite you for a brief moment of reflection in your own life before we come to the Lord's table. And I wonder if you can identify with a lot of what's going on in Job's heart at this point in time. And maybe in your mind, there is honestly a side of you that says, I think I could do better than God. Because when I look at the world, what a mess it is. And I don't know if God knows what he's doing, but I know if I had control over this world, I sure could punish the wicked, and bless the righteous. And God will say later to Job, oh, really? You think it's that simple? to know who to show mercy to and who to judge. Plus, if there's also a side of this that feels trapped between these two statements, God is good, okay, I acknowledge that. God is good. But God is good to me, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not really certain of that truth. And it's in those moments when we struggle to be able to say, God is good to me that we need to clean that says whatever it is that you think I'm doing in your life, understand this bedrock truth, that everything I do in your life is out of my love for you, and my care for you. Yes, living in a broken world that is filled with evil is incredibly complicated. Why does God allow such suffering? These are not easy answers to resolve. And yet what we find in the pages of Scripture is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, not to condemn the world, but through that son to save us, that we might know eternal life. So would you just pray just one or two minutes, uh, whatever God is laying on your heart, and then in a minute, I'm going to invite you to come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org.